This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel, and today I have the pleasure of chatting with an artist and cartoonist who has been a contributor to The New Yorker since 2018. Her online cartoon series, The Worried Well, was syndicated in 2016 and could be seen at gocomics.com. She's the author of the new book, Skip to the Fun Parts, Cartoons and Complaints About the Creative Process. Joining me now is the clever and candid cartoonist, Dana Jerry Mayer. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free or captive to a mystery. The curse of creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the podcast. I'm excited to have you. I haven't had a lot of illustrators, but I haven't really had a what I would consider you to be a cartoonist commentator. Yeah, I've never heard that before, but I, I like that. Yeah. Well, what I'm noticing is that you have a narrative in your head, which you're very good at being able to bring out. I'm going to ask, because I feel like it's a slight protection device, that you're thinking all the time about what it is you're doing, and you're watching yourself, and then you figure, well, I'm drawing this. I may as well put the self-sabotaging ideas and the authenticity into the narrative. Am I getting that slightly right? Yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a good way of putting it. There's a character I, I tend to draw that's... That's me. I'm using quotation marks, which you can't see because it's a podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wanted some plausible findability too. Like, uh, that's that's me. And that's my thoughts. But you know, maybe I maybe I'm pretending I'm someone else. I always admire somebody who can deconstruct their thinking while they're creating their art. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. So I feel like what you're doing is you're exposing what every artist goes through mm -hmm. just by saying, "Oh, I'm feeling this now. I'm going to talk about it now." I think you've nailed it. Because I think when you've been doing art for a while, maybe sometimes not for a while, but you, you start to wonder like, why do I like certain things? Why do I hate this famous painting that everybody else seems to like? You, you see your reactions to uh, the things in a different way and you, and you want to analyze them more. The subtitle on your book, Cartoons and Complaints About the Creative Process, I sense is a reverse psychology that people can go, oh good, I can get into the judging part of it. <laughs> yeah. You're kind of tricking them into talk about the creative process by pushing against it. I'm saying like this isn't like those other creative process books. This isn't like a how-to. Like we are very, very uh, wanted to lean into the advicelessness of the book. We were going to have a sticker on it that said 100% advice free, but that was deemed too busy. So that's not on the cover. <laughs> but but yeah, that, that's the idea. Like it's more about like, yeah, this is what it's about. This isn't going to give you any like, you know, 10 tips that'll change your life for any suggestions. Well, let me use that as an entree to get your opinion on, it won't be advice, but you know, how you deal with the blank page, because as an artist and as a writer, you always start, you know, looking into that snowstorm. What's your relationship with the blank page? It took me a while to learn that I could just appreciate the act of like putting pen to paper and I, I, I could just doodle and that was an, a perfectly fine way to start. I didn't have to come up with anything important or profound. So that's usually how I get going. I do, you know, these little warm-up drawings where I'm just kind of dicking around and not really uh, trying to create anything in particular. Sometimes those drawings turn out better when you actually are trying to make something. So you kind of have to be in this zone where you're like sort of tricking yourself into to get into like the uh, the playful I don't care zone. One of my techniques is I use a lot of like light boxes and tracing paper because I like to nine times out of ten like when I'm not trying very hard I'll, I'll capture the mood I'm going for and then I want to just like trace that onto like the, the final piece. So how valuable is the not caring part? Pretty valuable. I think that's like where most of the good stuff comes from <laughs> weirdly. And does it take you a while to get there? It depends on the day. 
I think sometimes it's just it's coming and then other times it's like I don't know what's going on I, I this isn't this isn't happening today I noticed in the book I can't remember what pages I was in there and there were all these little doodles of various fish yeah. kind of different <laughs> expressions on their faces different scales almost as if they were all dressed up differently and it felt like oh she's going on a doodling journey here and then somehow that opens the portal because I don't recall the writing being fish related. No, um, there's a section called procrastination fishies, which uh, when I kind of go into like, this is one of my defaults that I draw when I'm stuck or just when I feel like, you know, when I don't have anything else to draw, I just draw fish because I like fish. And I like what I like about drawing fish is that you don't have to be particularly accurate. You can just kind of have fun with the colors and the expressions and like the big weird eyes. So that's why you see all those fish there. They, they are the procrastination fish that I was drawing during the book. <laughs> so you are a, a, actually quite a good procrastination fisher person because yeah. you catch a <laughs> lot of fish while waiting. That's a nice, nice way of putting it. Well, I saw on your website, I think I dived into the murals or the illustrations or some area, and I noticed a, a big difference between my reaction to the black and white versus the color versions of some things. And... I guess I'm curious as an artist, when you make a choice like that, you know, when do you go, oh, this, this has much more value staying in black and white, or I really want to splash it with color because the color in, in one case, like was so much more inviting to me, but in a different area, in a different mural, I went, oh, I can't imagine this having any color. So uh, how do you decide? You know, it's funny. Cause I think for years, most of my drawing was in black and white. And the reason for that is like, I just felt like any color I added would have been arbitrary. Like it could have been red just as well as it could have been blue. So I just sort of decided I'd avoid it. And then it sort of took me a while to, to get comfortable, like using color in my work. Then, you know, it was mostly, I was just going by intuition. I was like, oh, you know, I like that green. I like that blue, but there wasn't like a grand theory behind it. Like these colors mean something. But then with cartoons, of course, if you're drawing, I don't know, like a lady at a park bench, you know, like, all right, that's going to be brown. That's going to be green. You're actually trying to make something that uh, that looks like the thing it looks like. Right. Some realism kind of helps tee it up to be like the part. Right. But if you're doing abstract stuff, like just because it could be anything, I, I always felt uncomfortable just like arbitrarily throwing some color on it. Well, where does your discipline and drive come from? Hmm. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, do you have a family of artists or I don't know what your background is. So I'm wondering whether or not you had witnessed folks that were in an artistic vein most of their life or if it all is internal? Yeah, my dad uh, always is an artist. So he was never like a, a paid one necessarily, but you know, he always was drawing and uh, he still does. So I think I, I sort of, you know, was mimicking him when I was a kid and that kind of got me started. I don't know, I, in, a, in a way, I, I think I actually kind of followed the path of least resistance. Like I like doing art, so it was an easy choice to keep doing that, but I also felt like I could do this and still work full time. So I do that. I talk about that a bit in the book. I don't know. I guess uh, it's hard to say like why you're wired a certain way, you know, like who influences you. But yeah, I'd say definitely having a, a dad who, who drew constantly, like that was just what he did. Like he didn't seem like he was even thinking about it. He was just always drawing. And I, and I think that's kind of how I interpret being an artist. Like it's just this thing you do. It doesn't matter like if you're having gallery shows or whatever, you're, you're just... We're just going to keep you doing it, even if even if nobody pays attention. What in the past were you doing that you would rather get away and do art? Nothing too interesting. Uh, it's mostly most of my my job has been in uh, ad tech, which I still do. But yeah, it's 
something that's definitely not art related, which in a weird way I think was better because I could make a very clear separation between like, this is the art stuff and this is the, the day job stuff. I, 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 in my head, I was like, all right, I, I'm in art mode or I'm in working mode. I don't have to smush the two together. Right. But you don't have to take your work mode home at the end of the day. It's the end of the day. Yeah. That was always important to me. Like no, no jobs where you had to uh, be working off hours. When I think about teachers, they come home and then they're grading papers and then they're making a lesson plan and they're, they're working as much not at the office as they are. And I find that with, I guess I'll use the word mm -hmm. artist as an overall, but that 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 means actors and other folks like that is that if they're not free to do their the thing they want to do when they're off work then it's not the right job to to have yeah no that's what it was always so surprising to me that so many artists became teachers because that you're right that seems like such a such a non-stop job yeah i don't know how you'd have the time for like your own thing if you're if you're doing that but you know i guess it's also one of the jobs that's readily available and if you you are technically doing your craft if you're teaching it to somebody else yeah, and I think craft is a really great word. And I don't mean it like scrapbooking, crafting. I mean that I think of a craft as the thing that you want to service as almost as if it's a watercraft, which is that it will keep you afloat. So yes, we have to make a certain amount of money. We have to pay our bills. But if you devote time to your craft every day or every week, it will be there when you need to go out to sea, when you need a gust of wind to take you out to the opportunity, you'll be sharp. Your art will be sharp. Your writing will be sharp. Your songwriting, your comedy, whatever it is you do. And I feel like that being craftsman is, it's almost like having a lifesaver vest on or whatever. No, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, if you're if you're honing something, because that's the verb they use when you talk about craft, right? You're always honing it. Like you're, you're trying to make it as good as possible. Yeah, it, it's, it's there for you. It's It's something you can fall back on. But there's also other people that you can look to that can mentor you or share. There's always something to learn. I don't think the best craftsman ever thinks they get it all right. They either get more ambitious to do something a little bit better or challenge themselves with something else because in a way we get bored if we're good at it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, you want, you want to get the next thing. When did you go from the page to bigger projects, to doing murals on walls and was that a big step uh, to go off of paper and pen and go to bigger scales? Um, logistically, I think actually went in the opposite direction. Like a lot of my older work was a lot bigger and now I mostly do like smaller things. I guess with bigger pieces, you still have to start small. So that's always kind of tricky because you can't just like go on a wall and be like, all right, I'm just plunging in and, and, and doing this thing. You have to kind of start with something to scale that you can sort out and then and then you, you put it up. But yeah, I think some of my, my older projects when I was like really just, you know, like I didn't know what I was doing. I, I was just like, oh, I have this cool big space here. I want to put something there. And I, I, I wasn't really thinking like too many steps ahead of that. I was just like, I'm going to just do my normal stuff, but I'm going to make it big. And that was, uh, I don't know, that, that's been really exciting, I think, because even just playing with scale is, you, you know, you're going to interpret something differently if you see it like as high as you are versus, you know, if it's a tiny little five by seven. And then that stuff you were doing was for fun and for yourself. But then you began to do commissioned work or paint murals at a restaurant. And so you then have to deal with the client, I would put also in finger quotes. But that all begins when you're designing uh, it on paper, right? When you're saying, by the time you're going to the wall, 
everybody knows kind of what the game plan is? Yeah, I would say so. It's funny because I think um, well, I studied illustration in art school. And then once I graduated, I decided, um, I don't know, I just didn't have the temperament for freelancing. I, I, I was not really great at constantly working with art directors and just the pace of it. So I decided, okay, well, I'm, I'm a fine artist now then. That means I, I can draw whatever I want and I can get chosen galleries if I get lucky and, you know, and I'll still... I'm still an artist. I'm just not like an illustrator per se, because I'm not, my art isn't about something specific. But then the older I got, the more specific my art became. So I kind of found myself like walking back to, to illustration, which is, which is weird. I think uh, a lot of people see illustration as like a, uh, like as a style, but I always thought of it as more like, you know, is this art saying something specific or not? Or is it just like, eh, this could mean anything. See, so yeah, I think in the beginning, my art was like, eh, it could mean anything. But then I, I became to like think, you know, I wanted like, nah, this has a message to it. This is, I want you to get something. I want you to get the joke or I want you to get this particular thing. There's a wry sense of humor in this material, particularly your view of art museums and galleries. <laughs> I would think that you get a good response from both the patron and the artist. Oh, thanks. Yeah. No, I, I, I love drawing in museums. That's the best place to draw, I think. So how much time do you spend in museums? Eh, a couple times a month. It should be more. You know, I live in D.C., which is great because we have the Smithsonian and everything's free. So if you just want to go in for five minutes and are like, oh, nothing in here interests me, you haven't like wasted 20 bucks. Sometimes I go and I'm just like looking and sometimes I go and it's like I just want to pretend I'm in art school again and draw like classical casts and, and just get those muscles moving. I remember a few visits to D.C. once when I went with my kids and between the monuments and the museums and the zoo and the Smithsonian that there is so much federally supported spaces where there's inspiration in every direction. It, it seems like it would be a really interesting place for an artist to go out into the world as opposed to being in their studio. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think, uh, no, I, I like D.C. a lot. I think it's an underrated city. It has a, you know, a very unartsy vibe, I guess, in the, uh, in the, in the way that it, it's seen in like popular culture. Like you wouldn't make a sitcom that's set in DC about like a group of artists living in a loft. Right. But, uh, right. <laughs> but a lot of artists do live here and, and work. And it seems like if they were, they would be hiding out from the politicians. Exactly. It'd have to be like some FBI plot line, something like, right, that, you know, right. One of the, one of the roommates is definitely working undercover. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. Thinking yeah. this would be a good, a good place to hide. How do you deal with deadlines? Are you good with deadlines? Yes, I'm kind of hopeless without them. Honestly, I'm one of those people who needs them. That's what I'm interested in, your self-discipline of how you make a deadline and how you meet it. For the New Yorker, at least, like their cartoon deadline is every Tuesday, so you kind of know like that happens. But yeah, I, I think, I, I don't know, like I, I need to have like, enough fear that somebody's going to yell at you if you don't finish a project um <laughs> going or but, but you know there, there's sometimes where it's like i'm going to yell at me and i'm going to be disappointed so for for certain projects that feel like where the stakes are higher then yeah you're you you can turn things out well i think a deadline is critical in almost anything i guess i always look at a goal as a dream with a deadline mm. it's not just a dream yes because then, and I, I've talked to other people about this, they go on and on and on about someday I'm going to write a screenplay, mm -hmm. someday I'm going to do this thing. And if I hear those words at the beginning of anything, I almost am not interested <laughs> yeah. in championing that person because you're going to see them at five parties over five years and you're going to say, how's that screenplay coming? Mm -hmm. And they're going to go, oh, just was thinking about it. And you're like, oh, those people I get real tough love on. Mm -hmm. The people who are working on anything, I will pass you water running on the 
marathon going by. I'll do whatever you need. Mm -hmm. But the people who are sort of BSing themselves, I always feel like, you know what? I'll talk to you when it's finished Mm -hmm. because they never start. They're non-starters. Yeah. No, and I, and I relate to that. I feel like, you know, there's a there but for the grace of God sort of element sometimes. Because, yeah, it's hard to start things. But, yeah, th- there's people you talk to, and you know in their heart of hearts, you know, that screenplay is never going to happen. And <laughs> it's Well, every Tuesday having a deadline, what that does is it creates a routine. Mm-hmm. And you can mentally back off how much you can procrastinate. You can pace yourself like you're taking yourself to the airport. And you go, okay, I got to be there an hour early. Mm-hmm. And then I have to turn in the rental car a half hour before that, right? Yeah. Do you do that kind of thing where you feel like you can get a couple more errands done before you go pen to paper? Or do you try to get that done in the morning so that you can already feel like the deadline is met? I try to, I, I like to have some breathing room beforehand, but I also know that like kind of sometimes the pressure of the last minute is what will get you over that hump. So yeah, I, I guess sometimes I'll have, you know, you have to get this finished art done in like three days. And I was kind of hoping I'd have a week, but those three days can sometimes be like really magical. Like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in it. I'm in the zone. I, I know I, I don't really have a lot of time to goof off. So I'm just like drawing for eight hours straight and listening to a great audiobook. And yeah, yeah you know, and I'm thinking like, this is, this is happy. This is how I want to live my life. But then I'm also like, man, I can't wait till this deadline is over and I can goof off again. <laughs> so All of it's about getting back to goofing off, isn't it? Pretty much, yes. That's where the good stuff is. I saw you had a fantastic coaster series where you did a bunch of drawings on many coasters that were laid out. Did that start off as a goofing off project where you just picked a coaster up and started then realized, oh, wait a minute, if I do more of these, I'll have a collection? Yeah, that kind of. I mean, I, at that point, I was like, I, I knew I liked drawing really small. And I was really, really interested in art that was portable. So at that point, when I was working on the coaster series, I, I worked uh, like two hours away in Western Virginia. Maybe it's like an hour and a half, but it was a while. So I needed stuff that I could like throw in my messenger bag and just always have on hand. And that project really let me just be like, all right, I'm, I'm drawing a coaster anywhere. I'm going to take inspiration from anything I see and draw it in my own style. And I'm going to have enough of them. And hang them on a wall and yeah and it, I, I don't know that was one of my favorite projects I did that about like 10 years ago now but I think it was um, a very small scale project like each, each piece was like four by four the size of a coaster but it also was huge because once you have a lot of them you know you, you got like a giant art installation that's taller than you are what was your source for coasters oh like where I bought them Oh, you actually purchased them? I didn't know whether you were taking <laughs> stacks of them from coffee shops or... <laughs> no, no, I, I would just uh, buy them wholesale. <laughs> so they were all like blank. All right, because well, I did, I would say about six months into the pandemic, I loved pizza. And so it was an excuse to order pizzas. Sure, yeah. And then the pizza box to me was a blank canvas. Hmm. So I was painting the lids of the pizza boxes out on the patio just for two reasons. One, it was a good canvas size. Mm-hmm. But also, it didn't matter. It, yeah. I wasn't ruining a canvas. Mm-hmm. So I wonder whether the coaster sort of began that way too, which is, it's just a coaster. No judgment. Yeah, I think that was the other thing too. Yeah, you're right. It's a very low pressure medium and they were cheap. So yeah, you, like you said, you're not like ruining something that's going to cost you all money. Right. If you bought a $50 canvas and then you painted the sizing on it and now you're staring at it and you go, well, where do I start? Oh, I better, I'll put a background, but then like every bit of paint you put on top of it, you think, oh, I'm ruining it. Exactly. Did you display your, your pizza box uh, canvases any, or not canvases? Uh, I, I did. Here's what I did. I'm not any kind of formal artist. I would take a picture sometimes and post it on Facebook and 
say, if anybody wants this, I'll send it to you. Because I felt it was kind of peddling hope during the pandemic. (laughs) And I was surprised that the people said, oh, I love that peacock painting. That would be good in my baby's room. I have a baby coming. Mm -hmm. And I felt so good about that. Oh, yeah. They would frame it on their end. But it's pretty easy to ship uh, the top of a pizza box without damaging it. So Yeah, I, it definitely feels way better to, to give away art than it does to sell it for less than it's worth. Oh, that I love that, to sell it for less than it's worth. Yeah. Because, you know, what is it worth? What is your time worth? <laughs> yeah. What is your signature and your value of your point of view? Mm-hmm. Over time, when somebody then becomes famous, of course, the art becomes more valued the further you go. And when somebody passes Mm -hmm. it seems to add a great deal of value because they know that the source there's not going to be a lot more coming from this person in this style Mm -hmm. but i think that's kind of a i really am intrigued by value with art because it's it's a little like selling perfume it's Mm -hmm. this ethereal i'm just saying the the notion is is that it's the trappings around it Mm -hmm. that sometimes make it increase in value right so we're going to give a celebrity endorsement. Mm-hmm. We're going to get some high-end photography uh, with some smoke coming out of the bottle. You know yeah. what I mean? Like somehow they create value. And I'm not saying that art doesn't have value. I'm just saying it's the stories that go with it that seem to increase it sometimes versus the just aesthetic value of how extraordinary it is or what the story being told by the illustrator is. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're totally right. Like, I don't know, do you go to museums and, and like when you're thinking about the painting, do you think about the guy who was painting it and like what that was like or do you mostly just think about the work? No, I think a little of both. Some of it I can see pain. Mm, yeah. I can really see pain. And so I look at his expression and therapy and I feel like it's a moment in time that gets captured that wouldn't have existed if they weren't in this place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think the thing, because I'm a word guy and a comedy guy and a marketing guy, oftentimes I, the one thing that drives me out of my mind at a museum is if I look over and it says untitled. <laughs> yeah. I think this person has so much talent and they've invested all this time. And I know maybe they don't, maybe they want me to bring my own story to it, but come on, you know, just call the painting Bob. I don't care. <laughs> but there are so many works in the world called Untitled. Do you have any opinion about titling or untitling? I'm pro. I'm pro titles. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I don't get angry if I don't see one like you do. But, you know, but yeah, I mean, you, you have to title your work. Otherwise, it's too easy to lose track. And, and yeah, and I think forcing yourself to title something kind of makes you think about it harder. You saw my coasters, like some of them were very, very abstract, but each one of them had to have a title because, uh, you know, that force me to identify it and say like, this is still about something. While I am a pro title advocate, and honestly, I volunteer my services. If you have an untitled, (laughs) I seriously want to be the known as the guy that walks through museums and titles everything. Uh, It would be a good job. But I'm, I'm here to tell anybody who struggles with having a title on something, doesn't have to be what the painting is. It can, it can be glory. It can be redemption. It can be one, two, five. It, it doesn't really matter. It can be the date and time of how you were at that moment. But it feels like it's a birthing process. And you don't, nobody has a baby come into the world and go, we don't call it anything. Yeah, exactly. I feel like everything mm-hmm. is entitled to have an identity of some kind. I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, you're right. I think that's... Um... And, and somebody smarter and more artistic than me will probably write me and tell me the why, and then I'll go, oh, I never thought of that. But I just really feel like a lot of creation and a lot of art is about bringing things to life. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't exist before, and now it does. 
Like if I said to you, hey, um, Dana, I want you to go see this painting at the museum. It's called Untitled. You're going to love it. <laughs> yeah. I guess the only excuse is if the artist dies before you can title it. And then you're like, uh, do I do I title this guy's art even though he, he didn't get a chance to? The judges accept that answer. Yes. At that, that point, you call it the last painting. And then you find out he did one before. That's the penultimate painting. <laughs> like you can still call it something. Yeah, that's true. Well, I, I saw something else intriguing on your website. And I'd like you to tell me about the art form known as wheat pasting. Mm. Do you know the history or how that began? And really for the listener, will you first describe what wheat pasting is? Yeah, so wheat pasting is you take a piece of artwork, you turn it into a photocopy that you can easily put on the street, like an abandoned building or a light post or whatever. And then you put it there with some sort of adhesive. Wheat paste is the traditional adhesive, which is like glue that you make from like actual flour and water. I never like that. I use something called acrylic gel medium, which is fancier and transparent, which is nice. So you can just slap it on and you have some art that now exists out in public. So it's a very uh, easy way to put a piece of art out into the world with uh, little money and no middleman, essentially. And you do it quickly mm -hmm. and hastily. Yeah, usually you don't want to linger just in case someone gets annoyed. Yeah. But you do the art at home and you do the Xeroxing at, and all of that and you prepare and then it's, a, it's like a ding dong ditchum art project. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> well, since you have a sense of humor, I'm going to pitch you something that I would love to, I'll commission it if you want. Yeah, sure. Well, I want you to do a wheat pasting mm -hmm. of an illustration of yourself okay. on a Wheaties box. I want you to wheat paste <laughs> your illustration on a Wheaties box because that seems to be, for athletes, getting on Wheaties is a big thing. So I basically want you to be on the wheat pasting box. I see. Okay. So it's like a pun on the, the wheat aspect of it I got. Okay. It's not like, <laughs> all right. But I think it would make a good, another good book cover for there you. There you go. Okay. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll get right on that. <laughs> okay. Well, you don't have, don't have to do it today. Sure. Yeah. I'm just saying I, I love those things that kind of have two meanings or that people who are in the know kind of get it. And then I will let you title it. I, I did a lot of wheat pastes where I was trying to, like I would take like a, a drawing that was basically a blank frame and I would put it on, you know, something that I'd see on the street. And sometimes I had a little like thought bubble or word bubble that would oh, that's cool. say like, I'm recontextualizing. I don't know if that one's on my website or not. Um, I will look, but I, that sounds fun. So essentially you're using the frame to compose something that's already sitting in public. Yes, basically. Okay, I like that. That's kind of an interesting art of composition, which is say to the passerby, I've noticed this before, now you take a look. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I'm probably not the first one to think of it, but yeah, it was something I was having fun with um, back in the day. Yeah, I always thought it would be funny to paint a painting of a door of a safe and frame it, because they always showed in the spy movies and stuff that the safe was behind a painting. Yeah. But I always thought it'd be funny to have a painting of a safe, and then you open it up and there's a painting behind that. Yeah. Not a safe. <laughs> yeah, I like that. You can see the trouble I go to to amuse myself. But... <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Now, also, this was fun. I mean, I liked kind of doing a deep dive into your website and stuff. You've designed and illustrated a few custom ketubas. Yeah. And I wonder how that first came about. And again, it's not a word I knew. So maybe tell people what it is. Yeah, yeah. So a ketubah is a uh, Jewish marriage contract. So if you're marrying someone and you know, you're putting your marriage uh, agreement in writing. Um, and I, I think a lot of them are like boilerplate, like, you know, 
things that have been passed down by rabbis for years and years. Usually they're like these decorative pieces. So like, you know, the contract goes in like a couple paragraphs of Hebrew, but then around it, they have like these pretty decorative borders. I did one for some friends who were getting married and liked it. I, I had a lot of fun with it and they were just like, yeah, yeah, free range. Like they didn't really want anything specific. So that led to another one. And then I just decided that I really liked drawing borders. So that led to just me drawing a lot of borders. So, so I think uh, that that's mostly how that started. One of my, um, the I'm not sure if you saw in the inside cover of my book, uh, there's like a border around the title, which I... Oh yeah, I, I'm actually looking at it now. Yeah. So here again, you're framing things of value. Ah, there you go. Both in the Jewish marriage contract and in the opening of your book that you're you're using this frame essentially to be a marquee of sorts. Hey, you're right. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're placing value around this thing that you are giving the attention. Yeah, the frame gives it the attention and the authority. You're right. I like that. I never made that connection. <laughs> yeah. And you know what else I've noticed that you use a lot of? What? You use a lot of illustrations of your cats. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I like drawing them. <laughs> they're How many do you have? Just two. I married into them. They were, they're my husband's cats. Oh, I see. Uh, but they do they call you stepmom or what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they, I, it's funny. I, I really refuse to be called a cat mom. I think that sounds too weird. <laughs> so I, I'll accept female caretaker, but that's as close as I'll get. Okay. I think crazy cat lady is the real thing you want to avoid. Yeah, yeah. What I loved about the illustrations is how quickly I could identify. We have two cats here. There was a series of drawings where the cat is on the bed, on the pile of clothes that haven't been folded. Mm -hmm. Anything that I have that is remotely square or rectangular, whether it's a towel or a sweater or my laptop or a book, if I need to use it, they're sitting on top. Oh, of yeah. It. They love surfaces. I don't even know what the reason for this is. They actually like shapes. Mm. So try this if you haven't with your cats, which is take masking tape and masking tape a box on the floor and they will be in it. Yeah. Yeah. They like perimeters. It's so weird. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you put a, if there's an open brown paper bag, they'll go sit in it. After I take something out of a box from Amazon, mm -hmm. they're in it as fast as they can be. So mm -hmm. it's simple pleasures, but I think not that hard to trap a cat. Yeah. I, one of the children's books um, I, I toy with writing every so often is um, my cats are named Dennis and Emerson. So we're thinking of writing a book called uh, Dennis and Emerson and the New Surface. It sounds like a good book. <laughs> Well, also just things like them batting things off the table or doing whatever. It just seems like maybe just the same as I noticed about you to yourself. You're very good at deconstructing. There's a self-awareness of what you're observing. And so you are able to shine a light on it at the same time as you're drawing it. Or maybe it's the drawing of it that makes you think more about what it is. So maybe there's some kind of a dance there between the two. Yeah, yeah. Trying to get into your own head. It's hard. I, I think... A lot of the essays and drawings I struggled with a bit because I was trying to say like, what am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? And then at some point I was like, actually, that was getting incorporated into what I was doing. I have a little drawing about like, I don't like the word doodle. Why is that? And then I, the, the whole cartoon is me just analyzing that word, things like that. So yeah. And what is it about the word doodle? I've talked to some other people who were big doodle advocates for freeing themselves up, but is the word seem frivolous to you? I don't recall in the book what you said. So at this point, what is your aversion to the word doodle? It just sounds like dignified. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess that's part of the power of it, right? Like you can just say, oh, this is just a doodle. I don't know. I just wish it was called something else. It sounds <laughs> silly when you say it out loud. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think comedians get offended if they if you say, I liked your skit, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like they just want to choke a person. <laughs> 
(laughs) Or if you're funny and and you do this great comedy set and at the end they say, wow, you're so clean. And you're like, "Mm, yeah, I really want to be known as funny. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're identifying the wrong adjective here. Right, right. Oh, he's the cleanest comic. You should go see him. His hygiene (laughs) is extraordinary. Yeah, that'll get me in the seat. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the new book because it's very exciting. It is just coming out. Skip to the fun parts. I know that you're it's you're a faux anti-creative process person. I mean, you're kind of stuck with the creative process, whether if you're going to do creative work, whether you want to be or not. But yeah, I'm 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 anti quick fix creativity guides, I guess you could say. Yeah, I am too. I don't think you can win the lottery and have the thing, you know, like delivered to you immediately. It takes discipline and there's a heavy lift there. And I think more than anybody I've seen recently, you sort of reveal that. I think maybe you put the angst in, in the work, particularly in the narrative even more than in the in the drawing, it feels like. I think maybe that is liberating, isn't it? That you don't have to, you can be who you are and think how you want, judge it or not, it's, you're telling your truth. Yeah, yeah, in, in the book I was, like I said, I was, I was very anti-advice. I was like, this is not a how-to book. This is only about, what it feels like to be doing creative work, our motivations for creative, doing creative work, but it doesn't, nobody should read this as like a, a, for tips or anything. I don't know, it's funny because I I talk about this a bit, like I fall for tips every time. Like if you ever tell me like, oh, this is this thing that's gonna make, you know, working less hard, I'll be like, great, sign me up, I'm gonna read that. And then I'll always put it down disappointed because I'm like, wait, I I wanted a quick fix and I didn't get one. And I, I basically got free range to kind of like, hey, what, what do you think about everything? So I, I don't really have to self-censor or anything. Right. But when you have free range, doesn't that create a different set of problems? That is true, too. <laughs> when there's no borders or no deadline or no specific thing that you're supposed to do, like it kind of makes you ask a lot more questions. Yeah. You have to think critically about every about a lot of aspects of it like you know is this is this part of the message? Is this what I want to say? How would you describe your signature style? Hmm. Um, inky. Inky, so inky's a good word. I've never heard anybody describe their art as inky. It needs to have some other words with it, but that's a good one. Playful, I would hope. Definitely playful. I'll go with quirky. Uh, handwritten, <laughs> I guess. Very into to handwritten words and letters. You know what? I feel like I should have a better answer to this. <laughs> when a person sees it, they understand it right away. So for you to have to identify it maybe was an unfair, I maybe led you into a back alley you didn't, <laughs> you didn't want to be going down. But I feel like there's something very natural about your characters and their facial expressions and their relationship to the objects. And there's a simplicity, but kind of a elegance to it because the hand-drawn quality makes us feel like the original and uniqueness of it comes through. It's interesting that it's a different kind of fine art. Oh, yeah. Because you can do it quickly when you need to. If I sent you a joke to illustrate, I think you could respond to it quickly. I think you have the toolkit, the artist toolkit, and the point of view that you would immediately put a character into some kind of action or position and put some expression and find the right objects that you would bring a lot to the party that the joke would come to life quickly is that fair to say oh i hope so yeah that's <laughs> no thank you for saying that I, I feel like i work slow so it's nice to hear you say say the opposite well it feels to me to the style and maybe this is what where we get back to the word illustrating is to draw or to make art as a visual medium but to illustrate is often to be a co-writer 
to be a storyteller and the art has a point of view. Yeah, yeah. The best definition I heard of illustration is um, it's what a thing is and how you should feel about that thing. I think Dash Shaw said that. But yeah, that's how we saw illustrating it. it you want to know what you're looking at and also the, its vibe, essentially. And how do you feel about the word cartoonist? I know that you are a cartoonist, but it feels to me like it could have the sort of underscored value the way the word doodle does, but it seems like you're a very proud cartoonist. No, I, I, I feel the opposite about the word cartoonist. I think uh, cartooning is probably the hardest art medium you, you could sign up for. I, I think cartoons are so much harder than, than the work I was doing before. Well, you're good at it. I have to say this, you're an exceptional cartoonist and you're a great illustrator. And I appreciate you sharing your non-advice today. <laughs> Folks can find out more about your book, skip to the fun parts and see much more of your art, your quirky, inky, playful, handwritten art uh, by going to your website, which is danajerrymayer.com. And the Jerry is J-E-R-I and the mayor is M-A-I-E-R. So danajerrymayer.com will get you to the, to the magic that's unfolding there. And thank you so much for joining me on this today. Oh, thank you. And thanks for all the great questions. I, I had a fantastic time. Good. Well, I wish you continued success. And I can't wait to see your face on the cover of Wheaties Paste Box. <laughs> I'll get right on that. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. We know you have many choices in the podcast universe, so we appreciate you investing the time to be part of our creative community. Creativity in Captivity is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with support from co-producer Tucker Hazel, Boy Genius. This episode was edited by the Right Honorable Hannah Dykstra. Original theme song written and sung by Maya Sharp. Additional support and technical jiggery pokery provided by Diane Johansson, Delilah Lovejoy, and Tony Deo of Ghost Runner Records. If you are inclined to rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends that need a weekly creative boost, we would be forever grateful. If you'd like to check out our extensive listening library of creative conversations, please visit creativityincaptivity.fun. That's right, I said dot fun. It's like a recess with the fun after the first period. See you next week. Staring at an empty page, stepping 